and our God. Amen. In our services at the moment, we're looking at the book of Judges, a series on heroes, heroines, and anti-heroes. Um, tonight, we're looking at the story of Jephthah, and I think Judith is going to come and bring us our first reading. Thanks, Judith. Our first reading is from... Judges chapter 10, commencing at verse 6 through to chapter 11 and the end of verse 3. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord, and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. Jephthah the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Eleven verses four to eleven, and then we jump from twenty-nine to forty. Some time later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah 
from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to the fight, the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Verse 29. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, he crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated twenty towns, from Arua to the vicinity of Minith, as far as Abel Karimim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, Who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and the girls went to the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelites' custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. We have a third reading tonight from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. 
go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my my vow is a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore stand in awe of God. Those cautionary words from Ecclesiastes could easily have been written with Jephthah in mind. A man whose whole life was undone by the uttering of a rash vow in the presence of the Lord. What was he thinking of? Was he trying to impress God with his dedication and his commitment? Did it not occur to him that perhaps the first one out of the house might be his one and only precious daughter when he got back flushed from his success at routing the Ammonite army in battle? What on earth possessed him to make such a vow in the first place? Ecclesiastes warns us to be careful of what we say in the presence of God. Something we should take on board as we worship. Has been said that Christians may not tell many lies, but they sing thousands. What do we express to God in our worship? Do we really mean it? On the face of it, Jephthah's words sound quite pious, a demonstration of his zeal to win this battle for God. Why else would he stake so much on the outcome? I will sacrifice as a burnt offering whatever comes out of my house to greet me if you give the Ammonites into my hand. The nature of the commitment is is quite explicit. Much as we might like to do so, Jephthah's words can't really be twisted to allow us to suppose that he merely meant that he would dedicate the life of his daughter to the Lord so she'd spend the rest of her life serving God at the sanctuary. It actually really does look as though burnt offering means human sacrifice here, something that actually was totally abhorrent to God, one of the practices which he detested among the inhabitants of Canaan. So Jephthah was deeply misguided to make such a commitment. Like so many Old Testament heroes, he is a deeply flawed character. And what on earth did he suppose 
would be the first out of the house to greet him. His dog? It wasn't even as if he said, you know, the first thing, out of the gate. It might have been his horse or one of the domestic, uh, the farm animals. You know, out of my house. That kind of restricts the, the field quite considerably. A moment's thought would have told him that the first one out of the, out of the house would surely be whoever or whatever was most pleased to see him, correspondingly the one most precious to him. But then... You know, if the vow didn't entail someone or something precious, it wouldn't have meant very much at all, would it? He was staking something valuable in those words in his vow. Given that she's the victim of Jephthah's misguided zeal, I think his daughter is extremely understanding about the whole business. Give me a couple of months with my friends and then, yeah, do as you have said you will do. Goodness knows what his wife said about the whole affair. Could have been me! You will sacrifice whatever came out of the house first. It's not exactly a recipe for future marital bliss, is it? So why say those awful words in the first place? He's facing a major battle. More than anything else in the world... He wants to win it. So he raises the stakes. God, if you, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, I will sacrifice to you whatever comes out of the house first to greet me when I get back victorious. It's a tit-for-tat bargain. You do this for me, God. I'll do that for you in return. And maybe therein lies the root of the problem. Jephthah was going into battle with the wrong mindset. He wasn't going into battle thinking, God has called me to serve him and and, and do this task for him. And the outcome is in God's hands. He's going into battle thinking, I need to make this happen. How can I ensure that God is on side? How can I guarantee that God will deliver the outcome that I need? Maybe it was fear of failure that pushed him in that direction. After all, a huge amount was at stake. Or maybe... Maybe it meant that much to him because of what he stood to gain if he won the battle. Let's not forget his origins. He was a bastard. His mother had been a prostitute. His brothers had driven him away from the family saying he would never get to share an inheritance because he was the son of another woman. So he'd always been an outsider with the chip on the shoulder that comes from being an outsider all the time. But now, what happens? The rulers of the land east of the Jordan, no less, come to him cap in hand and says, would you lead us into battle against the Ammonites? These are the people who'd rejected him. These are the people who'd driven him away. 
And now they come to him and say, we want you to be our leader. And their sweetener, the reward they offer him for helping them is that if he succeeds, they will make him their ruler. He will govern the whole land of Gilead. Do this for us, and we'll do this for you in return. It's another tit-for-tat bargain. And Jephthah can't quite believe what he's hearing. What? If the Lord gives the Ammonites into my hand, you'll make me your leader? Yes, they say, as the Lord is our witness, we will do as you say. And for good measure, just to be sure, Jephthah goes to the sanctuary at Mizpah and reports all this in the presence of the Lord. And not once, not twice, but three times he's told, if he succeeds, then he, the illegitimate outcast, will be put in charge of the people who rejected him. This is a life-changing moment for him. And it looks as though nothing was more important to him than fulfilling this dream of having the chance to rule over the very people who'd rejected him and made his life a misery. That was the be-all and end-all. Nothing mattered more in the heat of the moment, not even the life of his daughter. So maybe... His motivation wasn't just a zeal to see God rid the land of the foreign oppressors. Maybe there was a little bit of ambition there, chance to make something of myself. And maybe that's why he couldn't rest easy with the thought that the outcome would just be in God's hands. He needed to win this fight for God's sake and for his own. And what was driving him was perhaps not just a desire to honour God, but some sense of of the need to compensate for his own inner sense of insecurity and inadequacy rooted in that lifetime of rejection that he'd experienced. This was his chance to become respectable. This was his chance to show everybody that he wasn't the bastard outcast. This was his chance to prove to the world that he was a leader that he was not what everybody thought he was going to be. So he'd done the right thing, he'd gone into battle for God, but deep down inside, the outcome of it mattered far too much for him just to leave it in God's hands. His overriding need to succeed betrays the fact that he wasn't simply secure in his own identity. He had something to prove. And when it comes to serving God, sometimes we need to check our motives and make sure that we're not wanting above all to achieve success because we're compensating for some inner sense of inadequacy. You can't serve God effectively if all the time you're trying to prove that you're somebody, that you're worth something, that you're achieving something. If that's the case, then you're just a disaster waiting to happen. Jephthah was driven by his own inner need. And the death of his daughter was a direct consequence of that. It's only in the making of this rash vow that Jephthah let slip what's really going on inside his heart. Outwardly, he's the model leader. 
You can see his leadership qualities by the way in which he gathers a band of followers around him in the land of Tob. His negotiations with the leaders of Gilead are highly skilled. There's no wiggle room, no space for manoeuvre. He nails down the commitment that they will make him their leader if he wins the battle. There's no going back on it. No room for misunderstanding. No misinterpretations of what's been said. And when it comes to the preliminary exchange of words with the Ammonites, you can see that Jephthah knows what he's talking about. He knows the history of his people. He knows that the Lord is the one who is in charge. He looks back. He records how it was the Lord who drove the Amorites out before the people of Israel, gave Sion, king of the Amorites, into Israel's hands. He tells the Ammonites, look, we will possess whatever the Lord our God gives to us. Can't you just take what, the, what your God, Chemosh, gives to you? If not, then what kind of God is he really? So let the Lord, the ultimate judge, decide the outcome of this dispute between the Israelites and the Ammonites. That's what he tells them before he goes to fight them. And they're fine-sounding words of faith and confidence in the overruling sovereignty of God. But did he really believe it? Because if he really believed that, he wouldn't have struck this bargain with God, saying, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, then I will give you as a burnt offering whatever comes out of my house to greet me. He would have left the outcome in God's hands because God is sovereign. God will decide what's going to happen. Jephthah is merely God's instrument to achieve God's purposes. But no, it matters too much for him just to to leave it with God. So he says the right things, but deep down inside, he doesn't quite believe what he says. His declaration of confidence in the Lord was a bit too glib to be true. And so if he really believed that God was in charge and he could trust him for the outcome of the battle, he wouldn't have tried to ensure that God was on his side by promising to sacrifice whatever came out of his house to greet him when he returned in triumph. That outward, confident talk about God being in charge masks the way which deep down inside Jephthah was haunted by a fear of failure that skewed everything else. He was a deeply flawed man. And God uses flawed people just as well. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing in front of you here tonight. God uses flawed and damaged people all the time. But the tragic story of Jephthah calls us to examine our motives with care. When it comes to doing stuff for God, what really is going on inside? Is it my own ambition? Is it my desire to be successful? To to have status in the eyes of other people? To prove to everybody else that, that I am worth something, that I can do this? Am I compensating for my own sense of insecurity or my own fear of failure? And the extent to which we try and bargain with God can be a pretty clear indication of the extent to which we're governed by our fears. 
And the danger of trying to do things for God when we're not secure in our relationship with God is that we get the emphasis all wrong. We want our ministry, whatever it is, to go well because we need to succeed. We need to feel that we're worth something. We need to feel that we matter. We need to know that we count. And because all that means so much to us personally, it's really important that God blesses what we're doing so that we are successful. And then what we do stops being an act of worship offered to God with the outcome left to his sovereign providence. Our ministry instead becomes something we want God to do for us. And it all revolves around what I want to achieve, what I want to succeed in, how I feel, rather than around the Lord, for whom we're doing it, who's called us to do this, who has the outcome in his hands. And many of us actually know that We are weak and insecure people. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why we came to faith. So how can we avoid falling into this trap? The key thing perhaps is to bear in mind that we can't do anything effectively for God until we've given ourselves completely to God first. You give yourself to God then you give yourself to God's work. So whatever you do comes out of that knowledge that your life is in God's hands. He's called you. You belong to him. You are accepted by him. You are saved by grace. That is the basis for your confidence, your security, your identity. And on that basis, you do the best you can to serve him. But if you try and build your sense of identity and value and self-worth on what you achieve and what you're able to do, it stops being about God and it starts to be all about you. And you're driven by fear of failure and what other people think of you. And it all matters too much to you for you to be able to do it right. So getting the horse and cart the right way around are really important. We don't do what we do to try and get a sense of our own importance or significance. We give ourselves to God first. And on the basis of the truth that we are saved by his grace, forgiven, accepted, loved, children of God, on that basis, we give ourselves to God's work. So we're not trying to do anything to earn God's favour and the core of our self-worth lies in the truth that we know our lives belong to God, not in the success of whatever it is that we're trying to do. And we're content to leave the outcome in his hands because it's all about his glory, not about how important I am. And that means we're not driven by a fear of failure or a desire to prove that I'm better than anybody else. We are all saved by grace. Those of us who feel that we're gifted, those of us who feel that actually we're not worth very much, we're all saved by grace. And it's on the basis of God's acceptance of us that we strive to give our best to him and do our best for him. 
Had Jephthah realised all that, perhaps he'd never have made that rash vow. No need to prove himself. No need to show that he was better than everybody else. No need to compensate for that lifetime of rejection. No need to, to succeed because it mattered so much to him. He could have believed what he said. The outcome is in God's hands. God will give us what God purposes to give us. And I'll trust him for that. But to be able to do that, you need really to trust God. And he hadn't quite got to that point himself. And then as well, actually, you know, what right does he have to sacrifice to God anything or anyone but his own life, really? There's only one sacrifice that needs to be made by those who work for God. And Paul identifies it in Romans 12 when he says we should offer our own bodies as living sacrifices. This is holy. This is pleasing to God. And this is what real worship is actually all about. So let's pray. Lord, you you see deep inside of us. You know our insecurities and our fears and our sense of inadequacy and how tempting it is to, to prove ourselves. To feel that we're important because of what we do. the need to enjoy success. Lord, remind us that what we do is all about you and not about us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have called us and chosen us, claimed us as your own. Thank you that we don't need to impress you. We can't offer anything of value to you. But our own lives placed in your hands because you are our saviour and our Lord. So tonight, we set aside all that we, all that we do and we just come before you and say, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And whatever work you call us to do, enable us to do that in your strength and for your glory.
in Jesus' name. Amen.